Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and families and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook or thedjburr on Instagram. Welcome to another episode of Making an Addict. I am DJ Burr and I am here with Christina. Christina is a dear friend of mine and she is willing to share her experience, strength, and hope with us all. Christina, welcome. Thank you, DJ. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'm curious what you thought when I invited you on the show. Um, I was actually really flattered. Nice. So, you know, we're talking about addiction and you and I are both in addiction recovery. And so, um, what has that been like for you? How did, how did you get started in addiction recovery? What did it look like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Um, my, the first time I got, um, I, I started in recovery was in 2007 um, from alcohol. And I stayed sober for about four months, but I couldn't take my friends with me. And there was no like uh, SLAA type recovery. Um, That came later. And that was part of why I relapsed too. Uh, I realized that the alcohol was masking like so much. Uh, It was really, um, when I took that away, like, all of my other problems just came glaring to the surface. <laughs> like they about, do. Yeah. About how, how lonely I was, how the person that I was chasing after didn't really care about me. Um, and I couldn't take my friends with me. Like all my friends drank too. And so I had this big old fear of missing out. I went to meetings for a few months and I didn't, uh, I didn't make it a point to really connect with other people. I didn't stick my neck out to do it. And so I went back out, was out just drinking, acting out um, for another several years uh, up until 2014. And I believe I met you at my my very first meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At my very first, <laughs> at my very first SLAA meeting, and I went to, um, I went to AA again, and then SLAA. I started them both at the same time. Um, I tried. I basically was chasing a guy into, into recovery. Wow. Got another one, and he still didn't want anything to do with me, and I just wanted to die. So, um, and then I realized this isn't how I want to live. This is, this is crazy. Um, 
And let me tell you, people, when someone who is dealing with like a, a process addiction, like sex and love addiction, when we say that we just want to die when uh, we're rejected, that is like legit, right? It feels so painful. It's like going through, you know, substance withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it was it was pretty bad. And I, I noticed a pattern um, after getting sober this last time. Um, I managed to stay sober from drugs and alcohol for about two years. And so then I went back out over a guy. And when I came back in, it was like such a, um, such a profound change in my mind about how, um, how my patterns were. And the biggest thing that I noticed was I had this really strong desire to be cool. And I didn't think that I was cool enough on my own. Like these people, these guys that I chased after, um, and who didn't really, you know, didn't really like me back as much as I wanted them to, were, um, they were cool. They were just too cool. And looking back, um, I realized they were people, they were guys that people kind of didn't really like all that much. Um, you didn't really like them. No, they didn't. They they weren't very likable people. Oh, likable people. Okay, were, interesting. For the most part, there were a couple who were charming. Um, my younger daughter, her father, is very charming. Um, and I would tell these crazy stories about how, like, just what a mess he was. And uh, I didn't see how, you know, I was, as I was pointing pointing at him, you know, I had three fingers pointing back at me too. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and people would meet him, they wouldn't understand, they couldn't understand and then they met him they're like, oh yeah. Um, but I thought that by, you know, by association, I would be cool by association when really, you know, I look back and I'm like, I did a lot of cool things on my own, you know? I have always thought you were cool from like day one. That's oh, so thanks. wild. Thank you. Yeah, because we <laughs> if we won't we can't see it in ourselves, right? And so we look for other people to inform us of our worth. Right. Right? Yep. Until we get into recovery and do the work. Yep. And realize that we're worthy just for being us. Yep. Just for being human for sure. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, also, in recovery, I got to kind of see where it came from. Okay. Um, I had I had a pretty lonely childhood. It was boring. Um, we lived in the woods. I didn't have, like, the kids who were in the neighborhood moved away when I was pretty young. And then my I had another neighbor who had a stepdaughter, and my mother would never let me go over there. And then turned out he was somebody who uh, ended up going to prison for uh, several counts of child molestation. Holy shit. And I think his, uh, one of his step- older stepdaughters had reached out to my mom about it. And so she knew. She didn't want to tell us, like, why. She was just like, just, you can't go over there. Um, so when I got to go to my friend's house, you know, I, that, was, that was it for me. Like, I loved going over there. And then I, I also felt like when they were out doing stuff, um, I was missing out. Like, mm-hmm. I always felt like I was missing out on the things that my friends were doing. And so when I started, um, when I got a little older and got my own car and started working and stuff, 
and would stay with friends, that's really when the drinking and acting out took off. Because I had all these years of boredom just mm. like stacked up and I was I was just trying to plow through that with all the intensity that I could. Like maybe it was not gonna last? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Had to soak it all in. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, and I was just like binging on on social life. Yeah, on other people, places, and things. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And then later, um, what it looked like was that acting out and drinking and using. Um, I did quit drinking, and between the time I was about nineteen till I was twenty-one, and started just using drugs. Uh, on the weekends and what that provided for me was a way to be where I was even though I wasn't being authentic I wasn't I wasn't living in the past and I wasn't anxious about the future I was just there where I was yeah and that continued until I got to you know got to recovery and got sober and realized that you know I can do it takes a few minutes, but I can do for myself what drugs and alcohol and acting out did for me instantly. It just takes time. It just takes we ha- time. We have to be patient. Yep. Okay. And connecting, you know, I sometimes I have to stop and realize this is where you are. You're not in the past. You're not in the future. You're right here, right now. Um, I pray every day. Um, I currently do not have a sponsor, but I, I did have one for a while. I've asked a couple people, it just hasn't worked out, but I still have been going to meetings and um, staying close to my programs and staying uh, plugged in with my recovery friends. That's good. That's good. It, it can be hard to get a sponsor. Uh, one, you know, we have to, they say, find a person who has what you want. And even though we might find that person, he or she may just not be available. Right. And so then we're kind of just left there to, you know, do the do the work with our friends in the program mm-hmm. instead of just a sponsor. So, OK, cool. Um, what do you think you still have to work on? Um, I definitely have to work on. Accepting myself for who I am and accepting that I'm good enough. Um, I also grew up with my well, my dad died when I was young. Um, I was seven years old and he, he and my mom, from what I remember, had a good relationship. He and I had a good relationship. And when my mother remarried, it was to somebody who didn't really care that we were there. Mm. Like he basically tolerated us and, uh, that was tough. It was tough going from, you know, having a dad who would take me out, you know, outside and play catch with me and take me fishing and hunting and all these other things um, to having a stepdad who was like, oh, girls don't fish. And, Mm. you know, taking my brother to do the things that I wanted to do. Leaving you behind. Kind of leaving me behind, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It kind of goes with your fear of missing out. Yep. Because you were. I totally was. Um, you know, just a couple little things that they, they sound dumb, but like to me, they were, they were kind of traumatic and, and, um, like my, I wanted a motorcycle. I've wanted a motorcycle ever since I can remember. And my brother got two 
as no. a child. And I got none. <laughs> oh my goodness. Because I was told that girls don't do that. Mm. I also got the message that um, no guy wants a girl whose thighs are bigger than his. Um, no oh. guy wants a girl who's smarter than he is. So basically I have to dumb myself down. Don't be a know-it-all. Um, if I don't, but at the same time, I was intelligent. I did well in school. And I think a lot of that was because I was so bored at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was kind of my escape to schoolwork. And I either needed to have a MD or MRS in my name for my family to finally accept me for who I was. God, that's, that's crazy. Yep. And I, once I got to college, like I realized that I didn't want either. Interesting. And yeah, or that I wasn't willing to work. I wasn't willing to put in the work for the, for the MD, the MRS, you know, I mean, of course, of course I want to find somebody that I love that I, that I can be with, you know, on that level. But there just wasn't anybody in my life that I wanted that with yeah and in the long-term setting right right um sometimes we find people who are just as unavailable as we are yep and that was another thing too is like that that another pointed back to me as well like i would chase people who were unavailable because deep down i was really unavailable Mm. but i didn't want you know I didn't want anybody to think that because because isn't that what girls are supposed to be? It's like <laughs> that's all we want. That's what we just want to get married and procreate and you know have our little picket fence and whatever. Right, like you're supposed to have your shit together. Yeah. Right, but I don't know anyone who starts life with their shit together. Just no one. We all come by you know our our circumstances. I think um, naturally, you know, we can't control things outside of our control right and so a lot of us are impacted by our family of origin stuff right I think most people that I work with are impacted by family of origin stuff and it sounds like you were I mean losing a parent at seven I I can't imagine yeah it was tough um it was really tough and at the same time um well, actually, I watched my mom bury two husbands because my stepdad died when I was 18. Holy cow. Um, my ste- There's been a lot of death of the men in my family. Um, my stepdad and a cousin died uh, around the same time, like within a week of each other. Uh, my stepbrother, his son, um, died traumatically uh, when I was 15. Um, he and his friend were playing around with a gun. He was 13. Um, and he he died from that Um, I've had two cousins OD and die and they've all been men like I'm pretty much the only girl in my family Mm -hmm. that's my generation Uh, I have a a little sister who's 16 years younger than me but other than that I'm the I'm the only girl so um, I imagine that has had some impact on me too about whether you know my inability to really get close to to men and to seek out relationships with people who are really unavailable because I am afraid that if I fall in love with somebody, they're gonna die on me. Um, Cause I watched what it did to my mom. I mean, she really checked, she, che- she really checked out after my dad died and that was hard too. Um, and so, she was raising how many kids? My brother and myself. Okay. So uh, she was raising two kids and lost her, her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, that sounds rough. 
But I think it would actually have been harder to have a dad who just left. Mm. Because I know it's not my fault that he died. Yeah. But if I had a dad who left, I would feel somehow responsible. I know, I know that much. I know that much from, you know, hearing from my friends, you know, whose parents have separated or um, friends whose dads just never were around to begin with, you know. They somehow felt like it was their fault. I had that experience. I thought my I thought I had done something, you know, um, and I still have that similar relationship today as an adult with my with my parents. You know, it's like so if I don't communicate with them and they don't communicate with me, then it's must some I must have done something, right? But the truth is, they have their own stuff. Right. Yep. And that's another thing I learned in recovery is that nobody thinks about me as much as I do. <laughs> and the one of the more interesting things that happened when I got sober and kind of got past the, the raw, rough patch. Um, I mean, there's always going to be rough patches, but the worst part, like the most emotional intensity um, that I think I've ever experienced in my life, uh, was the part where um, I stopped making up stories about what people thought about me. Like people from work, you know, my manager and everything, they'd go outside and I'm like, they're talking about me. They're going to come back in and fire me. It was always something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just them. It was just anytime two people were off together and I wasn't there, um, I thought they were talking about me and plotting against me. Yeah, that's some storytelling. Yeah, it was always a conspiracy. Sometimes it was way more blown out of proportion and dramatic than than others or if somebody didn't call me back or didn't text me back i made up this story about what was going on and why they weren't talking to me Mm -hmm. yeah and so what do you think where do you think that comes from um probably spending way too much time with people who do do that kind of stuff ah okay yeah that makes sense that yeah, that and um, my mother was kind of gossipy too. Okay, I grew and up in one of those families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not not as bad as as some that I've heard, but yeah, I've I experienced a lot of two facedness um, in my childhood and adolescence. You know, and you know, girls are like that too. Growing up, you know, that's how we're taught to be. We're we're not taught to to handle our problems the same way boys are, which is directly. Yeah. So we might whisper to her, you know, you might whisper to a friend or, or, um, you know, talk behind someone's back instead of being direct. Um, I get that. I mean, my family, when something was going down, like people were picking up the phone, they were calling, did you hear kind of deal. Mm -hmm. I got that. I mean, when I came out and said I was gay, I mean, it was like the phones lit up. Yep. Yeah, there was, uh, gosh, there was an incident with my mom and my sister a couple years ago. Um, I did something that they didn't like, and they were just on the phone cluck clucking with each other, and, <laughs> you know, one of them sends me a message, and the other one sends me a message, and I'm like, y'all need to just mind your own business. Right, right. Um, my sister at the time, I don't think she was a, a mother yet. She's... She has a three-year-old now, and I think she's get she gets it. She gets it now. She's a, I feel like she's a lot less judgmental than she was before having kids. And my mother never worked. I mean, she worked for a brief period of time, 
when I was a kid, but she really didn't work outside the home. And so I don't, you know, it's like you, they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't get they it. judged me and I try really hard not to judge them back, but you know. That's challenging. It's challenging. Right? Because some of the things that they have said and done have caused wounds. Absolutely. Right. And so we're, we're left with trying to repair those wounds. And that's where we, that's where recovery comes in. Yep. Yeah. Picking your own family. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's probably one of the best things about being in recovery. We get to start fresh. Yep. <laughs> and sometimes people will work out and sometimes they won't. But I think we'll leave that, that relationship knowing that it wasn't our fault. Yep. Good. Okay. And you have, you have kids. Yes. Do they know about your your past, your addiction history, and and also your recovery work? They a little bit. Um, so the past year and a half, they have not been living with me. Um, but before, they they're living with a grandmother's now. Um, but before that, I was sober for almost two years, at the time that they that they left, and. I just told them that I don't drink grown-up drink anymore, okay. and then I go to meetings. And sometimes they would go with me if there was childcare available or a, a room that they could play in with other kids. Um, I don't think they quite understood all of it. I mean, because you know they're pretty young. Yeah. Um, but I think they saw a change in my demeanor that was probably more favorable hmm. for them too. And do you do you think that at some point when they're older, you'll have that conversation with them, a really direct conversation about life and what your life has been like and why you made the decisions that you had to that impacted them? Uh, I try to stay as honest with them as I can now um, in a way that they can understand and maybe not take take on. Um, I think my older daughter is having a hard time not taking on some of my stress uh, and I have to be really careful um, because I still have you know I still have stress in recovery and that's kind of a boundary that I have to set you know as um, as an addict and alcoholic I have serious boundary issues too that I've had to work on um, and that I have to make sure that I don't say too much and do it in a way they can understand but i try to do it as often as possible sure so um, almost maybe checking in with them a little bit and right. sharing what's appropriate right exactly yeah. yeah that that's a boundary sharing what's appropriate yeah yeah for their age too and because they're how, what's the age difference they're five years apart okay yeah that's a that's a big difference when you're a little kid yeah and my 12 year old is starting to um She's starting to see and hear some things, you know, with her peers. Oh. She's not in the best neighborhood with her, her grandmother right now. Okay. Um, and the schools kind of reflect that. And, um, you know, I have some guilt about that, too. But But you're working on it, I'm right? I'm working on it. Yeah. I'm working on it. We have to work on it every day, right? So what are some of the gifts of recovery that you've received? Some of the promises um, okay. that they read at the end of, uh, of meetings. Um, I, 
I guess the biggest one now is like fear of financial insecurity. Mm. I'm not, I'm not financially secure, but I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid anymore. Um, I have the ability to bring myself back into the present and, you know, be where I'm at because the other, the alternative is, is really stressful. Um, I show up for people. My sleep is definitely more stable. Like I have more regular sleep patterns. That's good. Uh, I mean, so many things that make me physically healthy and I do these things consistently, um, to where I can just be a better person in society and show up for people. That's the main thing. I want to show up for the people who are important to me and I can do that a lot more now than, than before when I bailed a lot Mm -hmm. because I didn't feel good. I've been up all night chasing after somebody or, you know, right. Being ashamed. Mm hmm. And, and would you say that you are now able to be in healthier relationships with men? Um, the relationship I'm in now is a lot healthier than any I've been in in the past. Um, I can think of maybe one or two long-term relationships that I was in um, previously, but as an active alcoholic and addict and um, just kind of looking at the grass is greener on the other side and that sort of thing. Um, I wasn't a good partner before. And if I was a good partner, I wasn't choosing good partners. Mm. And the relationship I'm in now, I mean, we complement each other really well. And we both recognize that we are, I mean, we are sick people, but we work through a lot of things together. We work, we talk about a lot of things um, that are bothering us and we go to meetings together. Um, but we have our separate things that we do too. Like I'm not offended if he doesn't want to go to a meeting or some other thing activity with me. Right. Um, and he's gotten over being offended and, and but <laughs> I, I mean, he's still, he still kind of gets a little bummed out if there are certain things I can't go with him too, but it's more endearing now than annoying. Right. And it doesn't sound like, you know, he's dying. No, he's not dying. <laughs> he's not dying because you can't go, yeah. which is good. That's a good sign. And it's like, and, and he knows that I'll be here when he gets back. That's really important. Yeah. Right. To, and vice versa. Yeah. That you're going to, you're going to come back. You're going to show up. Yeah. Right. Whereas, you know, we weren't always able to. Right. Right. So, that's fantastic. It sounds like recovery suits you well. It sounds like you've you've grown a lot in your life because of recovery. Absolutely. Right. And so what kind of what messages can you impart to our audience that um, about recovery that you think is important for people to know other than what you've said already? A lot of it is um I mean, it's cliches that you hear in the rooms and see on the walls, you know. Um, Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. Yes. That's a big one because it, I mean, this too shall pass. Mm. Um, Easy does it. I got to remember that one. (laughs) Yeah, easy does it. Keep it simple. Um, 
it may not always, it, it's simple, it may not always be easy, but it's simple. It's like, you know, and I, I listen to that little voice now and I'm more likely to do what it says, you know? Like to me, that's my, that's my higher power. That's my God voice. Um, and it comes from my gut and I'm, I listen to that. It's, and it's louder now hmm. than the addict voice because the addict voice it still shows up every day. Oh, absolutely. Like, Oh, call that guy. You know, you know who I'm talking about. Right. Call that guy or, well, you know, a, a martini sounds really good. Right now. I hate that one. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Oh yeah. That one's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then you think it just like. And it can the, snowball. And it can snowball. I'm right. not even going to go there. I don't want to trigger anybody. Right. So I'm, not, I'm not even going to get started. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. And then I. It passes. Um, I can call somebody, you know, get out of my head. Have to get out of my head. To get out of my own way. Um, turn it over. It's okay. It's okay to like. that's And that's the greatest thing about, you know recovery and and the idea of having a higher power is it takes so much pressure off me to feel like I have to do everything you know because mm. some things some things I just can't control there's a lot I can't control um realizing that I'm powerless that's a big thing it's not and it's not it doesn't mean that I'm weak it just means that I don't have control um which doesn't mean you're weak yes rem that's one thing I would I would rec just remember that you know can't control everything um and we shouldn't want to right i mean that's a, a lot that's a lot that's a that's that's a job that no one needs to have like we're just not capable of trying to control everything yeah right and when we do we end up with a shit show <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh yeah um all the things that i thought that i wanted when i let my higher power direct me it turns out that you know there was something better there was something better waiting for me, and it was completely different than than what I thought I wanted. Wow, that's a gift. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to meet with me, to have this interview. I think that your recovery has been impactful in my life, um, and I'm glad that we met at that meeting all those years ago because it, you're just a riot and I love you. And, you know, I'm going to miss you because Christina is moving away and I'm sad. I'm so sad I'm glad I got her on the show before she left, though. But we'll definitely be talking and staying in touch because when you're part of a recovery family, you don't just give up on that family when they move. Right. Right. Whereas... You know, there's people in my family. I haven't even, people have my family haven't even called me since I left Georgia. <laughs> you yeah. know, so that happens, right? But our recovery family, we're family for life for sure. So yeah. thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Making an Addict season one is wrapping up next week. We will be on hiatus until 2018. I am so grateful to all of you who have participated in the discussion this season. Being a part of your lives for the last 20 episodes has been a gift to my recovery. Thank you. Be sure to stay in contact with me over the break. If you want to share your story, I want to hear it. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. 
If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and TheDJBurr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by DJ Burr and the Recovery Legacy Network. Today's music features tracks by CDK. For more information on our tracks, visit us at makinganaddict.com.